Hello there. This is Rich Outfield, and you are listening to the Rich Outcast. And darn it, I've got a a cold. I guess it's a summer cold because it's whew, rough, and it's affected my voice. I tried to sing a song just like ten minutes ago. It was a crowded house song, and my voice sounded a little bit like this. And I bring the house down, I hardly know which way is up or which way is down. People are strange, God only knows. But I feel possessed when you come round. And I don't know if you can hear it, but it sounds like I'm imitating some scratchy voiced singer, but it's just my voice. I had intended to record a story today and I ended up shooting myself in the foot. I accidentally deleted a bunch of files off of this recorder when I was trying to delete the two files that I no longer had need for and ended up erasing everything that I had done in the last two months or so. That included an episode I recorded about 10 days ago, uh, and so I chose to do a new version of that episode. I could have sat down and done another story. I, I, in fact, I've lost a couple of the stories that I did earlier in the month and at the end of last month. But not all of those stories I would have made episodes of. There were several that I read for the very first time and found out as I was reading them whether I liked them or not. And the funny thing is, one uh, by M.R. James that I absolutely was going to do an episode of was deleted, and one that I didn't much care for somehow survived the purge. And uh, the thing with the deletion is if it had been a, uh, you know, files that I had removed from my laptop, they would have gone into the recycle bin, and you can get them out that way. Uh, Often there is an option for undo delete. But that is not the case, as I've found out several times on this recorder. When you hit delete, it doesn't say, are you sure you want to delete? It just takes them, and there's no going back. I'm telling you this, you know, this this two-minute intro is largely superfluous. I am just telling you because I am killing time. I'm, I'm procrastinating. This episode is going to be about my Uncle Len. I have spoken about him a lot since I began podcasting. Back in the Doonstief days, I would would tell Big Anklevich about my uncle, who believed in everything, who was fully convinced that he had seen ghosts, that he had seen demons uh, possessing people, that he had seen UFOs, that uh, his father had served in the military in New Mexico and knew about the crashed spaceship in Roswell or where they took the spaceship uh, to Area 51 and other things. He believed in everything, as I've said. Oh, it was a deer right there. If it had chosen to move forward, I would not have been able to stop in time. Uh, He was also a very, very positive person. (laughs) Positive that ghosts were real. 
but also in seeing the good in people, in recognizing the attributes that you had that were uniquely yours. And, and he was never afraid to throw out compliments, to try to make you feel good about yourself. And in a world where nobody does that, because everybody is either too self-serving or too focused on the negative, it was uh, always a pleasure to be around the guy. Wow, that story you wrote was so great. And, or the voices you did on that were so perfect. There was an episode of Campfire Radio Theater that I did a couple years back where I, uh, I, I was an old man in an English pub telling about uh, an experience I had had in my youth. And I did this voice through the whole thing, doing all the dialogue and telling about it, who I had found. And I was really thrilled that they had picked me to do that voice, I, although I think I may have auditioned. They'd said, is anybody able to do an old you know, English guy? But Uncle Len said, I, I didn't even know which one was you. And then when I got to the end and they said, Rish Outfield, I, I went back and I listened to it again and I, I couldn't figure out if it was really you or not. That was such a compliment and it made me feel like I knew what I was doing, like I was talented. You know, I, I, a lot of times I believe that I'm good at what I do and sometimes in order to push myself, in order to improve, I have to believe that I am better than everybody else, that nobody else would work as hard on this audio drama as I am. You've heard me talk about it before, that uh, somebody will send me uh, something and it says that the character lets out a blood-curdling scream. And I always go, oh, okay, uh, shoot, it's a shame I'm recording this so late at night, because it doesn't even occur to me not to do a, bl a real blood-curdling scream to just give it my all. And Len was somebody who would pick up on things like that. He loved my writing and would talk about it to other people and say, oh, my nephew wrote this story for me about this old guy who uh, runs into a vampire kid up in the woods. And he just... He wasn't like that with just me. He was like that with everybody. Oh, you've lost some weight. You look so good. Wow, somehow you look younger than you did last time I saw you. And I love what you've done with the curtains and the carpet. Oh, this food is so good. I'm going to eat it all. Uh, Len was a great big man. I don't know how tall. I could say six, one. 6'2", uh, but broad, so ridiculously big and boisterous, eager to laugh. He was comic. He also could do voices. My Uncle John and my Uncle Len were eight years older than me and 10 years older than me, uh, respectively. So they weren't so old as to not play with me when I was little. And they lived near enough that they would sometimes take me with them when they went to the park, went to watch fireworks, 
went to the movies. It was really great because even though I was the oldest child, I got a sampling of what it would be like to have older siblings, to have big brothers. And while my Uncle John was super extroverted and super focused on himself, uh, he always exercised, he, he was a bodybuilder, he loved to tell stories about his accomplishments, and, and John could sometimes be mean. I never saw that side of Len. Len was selfless and always chose to lift other people up. And he wasn't afraid to get down on his knees and try and help somebody else up to his own detriment. It was like, you know, you can use my back as a stepping stool if you want to. And people took advantage of that. Len was never as successful as he should have been. He worked really, really hard. And in that way, you know, I, I've never felt like uh, I was like him. But um, he and John were both comedians and they both did funny voices. Uh, Len was excellent with sound effects. He would make noises all the time when I was a kid. And I could never replicate what he did with the sound. And he had a child voice that he could do, where he would pitch up his voice and he sounded like a kid. It wasn't something that was, you know, affected, sped up or anything like that in post-production. He just was able to do it. And, and I, I've never been able to. A lot of times in my audiobooks, I will have a child character and I will do their voices. And I think I do a fine job, but it's never going to make somebody say, wow, it sounds like he actually brought a kid in to do that part. With Lynn, it did. And it was often really hilarious because he would have somebody that sounded like a seven-year-old say things that a seven-year-old shouldn't say. And, and, and that was amusing. I talked about him a lot uh, recently. And, and in the um, August to August episode, which <laughs> came out in September, I talked about helping him move, I think. And there was something... I can't remember what it was, where I talked about him specifically. He had worked construction, and because he was big, he was always given the hardest jobs, the heaviest loads, and he was insanely strong. I remember just a couple of years ago, my nephew and I went to a swap meet, and there was this great big fish tank. Uh, so big that I had real difficulty carrying it. And my nephew wanted it, and so we bought it, and I was lugging it as hard as I could. And Len, who had a bad back, he, so bad that he had a handicap uh, sign on his, his car, said, well, let me take it the rest of the way. And I said, oh, no, Len, Len, it's really heavy. Just give me a minute to rest, and then I'll... And he grabbed it, and he carried it with one arm, just over his shoulder, like it was nothing. Anyway, uh, a few years back, he got hurt on the job, and he fell, 
and he, he hurt his back badly. And he told the story of everybody else had gone home and it was up to him to clean up the site. And he fell and he couldn't get back up and he just lay there in agony. And finally he was able to, he was able to get his cell phone out and, and call for help. But he was not able to do construction after that. And to hear him tell it, he never had a pain-free day after that. And there would be times when he was just in agony. And you could see this glazed look on his face. And there would be other times when it was sort of just in the background, a discomfort. He... he he really struggled with that, and I suppose I talked about this on the, uh, what was that story called? Who Can It Be Now? He did have a, a, a stretch where he liked the painkillers a little too much and struggled to get himself off them, wean himself from the opioids. and. Him talking about that helped inspire that story, which uh, I always thought was a pretty good story. And, and I, I, of course, I mentioned this in that episode, but I, I sent it into an anthology of stories that took place in the Rocky Mountains, and I lost. Sorry, it was rejected. And, and that's fine. Everybody has rejections. But... I just felt like it was pretty good, but they could have had other stories that were like it, or, or, or it could have been derivative of other stuff. I don't ever claim to be the most original guy out there. But I sent Len some of my stories. I sent him Touching the Other Side and The Night Clerk, 10,000 Coffins. He was always complimentary, and I, I think maybe if he didn't like something, he would just not say anything, which is, you know, what Thumper taught us in Schindler's List. Anyhow, he, uh, he passed away just uh, day before yesterday. And I will be heading over to Las Vegas for the funeral. Because of the pandemic, they aren't having like big official funerals. They're having like outdoor get-togethers. I think they call them graveside services. Does that sound right? And maybe I'll pop in here again when I'm in Vegas and tell you how that went. But there, there is bound to be a lot of laughter, even at a funeral uh, for somebody whose passing was way too early because he was a very funny man and a storyteller, a born storyteller. I loved to listen to him tell these, these stories about the terrifying supernatural experiences he had had. And I, I remember saying on the Doonstief multiple times, I'll bet there were five different episodes where I said, if I had had all of the experiences that my uncle claims he has had, I would be in an institution, in a suit that ties up the back, uh, because 
Any one of those experiences would be something that would change you for your life. My mom believed that Len was somehow special. Supernaturally, like he had a gift, like somebody in a story or in a movie that was touched by whatever touches people in this manner so that he was able to see things that other people weren't able to see. And conversely, he drew the attention of presences and beings and such that other people did not. She believed that, and maybe there will be stories like that that are told. Len told this story, I, I think I, I mentioned it in the Who Can It Be Now episode, uh, when he was in the hospital for his back, that he heard this woman complaining in the room next door in, in such pain and suffering and things that she was saying and it kept him awake, it bothered him to hear. And when one of the nurses came in to check on him and said, you know, do you need painkillers? How are you doing? He said, yeah, I'm uncomfortable. But that woman next door, she's the one that needs your attention. You got to give her something. Wow. And the nurse said, as you can guess, there is no one in the room next door. The, yours is the corner room. There's, there's no one on the other side of this wall. He was full of stories like that. And he could tell them better than I can because he believed them. You know, this is something that really happened to me. That kind of story is way better than this is something that my uncle says happened to him. Or this is my, something that my uncle said happened to his dad. He was not a perfect guy. You know, he had a couple of flaws, and I know that his kids were upset with him for a while, and that is completely understandable. When my dad died, all I heard were stories of how great he was, and funny, and smart, and complimentary, and encouraging, and I didn't see most of that as his son. But as you know, I was not a great son. I certainly gave him plenty of reason to be disappointed. So at least some of the fault is with me there. But when someone passes, the, the flaws don't matter anymore. You can shrug them off because that is all in the past. And you tend to remember the good things the best things about somebody, and absolutely I expect that to be the case this weekend when people are talking about him and what he meant to them. And that's great. I guess I will leave you for now and maybe come back when I'm in Nevada, and maybe I'll have a new perspective and some new things that I said, oh, I should have said. So I leave you for now, and I hope that you are healthy and seeing the positive in yourself and those around you. Take care. All right, folks, I, I'm back, and 
I'm going to keep this very, very short. You know, they can't all be hour and a half long episodes. We're just going to have some short ones in here. And this one, who am I kidding? I mean, it's already long, right? So it's a week, not even a week. It's a few days later. The funeral was yesterday and uh, we just got home. My whole family went. My brother said that his work gave him a hard time getting it off. He's what's known as a lineman. You know, he works for the power company. Anytime that there is a storm or an accident or just a power line goes down or something, you know, he has to be out there fixing it at any hour of the day or night. And uh, he said they gave him a hard time to get the time off, but they really shouldn't have. You know, when it's a death in the family, uh, people should be more accommodating. My brother-in-law, he has to go to work early. And when I say early, I'm talking earlier than Marshall Latham. Marshall of the New Republic. Early. He, his alarm goes off at 4, and he has to be at work at 4.30. And he told me that, uh, they told him, you don't have to come in tomorrow. We understand. And that's how it should be. People need to understand that kind of thing. And anyhow, I ended up getting pretty sick with this head cold that I had the day that I, I started recording the first part of this episode. And it uh, it didn't knock me out. It was just uncomfortable. And I had a head that weighed 40 pounds and always had a headache and uh, lots of sneezing and stuffy nose. And my niece, Cathexis got it uh, at the same time. So I'm, our assumption is that we got it from the same person, but she got it. it. It hit her a lot harder and she has health problems. She's not, well, she's susceptible, let's say, to, uh, to getting sick more than I am. And uh, when she gets sick, it, it's harder for her to recover. And it's too bad. We spent a good portion of the weekend together. More than a weekend, the funeral was on a Monday, and so we had Saturday together, Sunday together, Monday and Tuesday together. We spent a good long time together, and I quite like my niece, but boy, she's really gotten an attitude. It, it, it's been funny, and, and it's hard for me to tell if she's joking or not, and it makes me wonder if part of the reason that I always get fired from jobs or have no friends is because it's impossible to tell whether I'm joking or not. I've always felt like it's been my fault that I don't know when the time has come to not joke. But yeah, she, she was telling everybody what a terrible uncle I had been when she was little and how I would always beat her. And I was like, haha, that's funny. But then she'd say it again and again and again, and she'd say things that I would do to her uh, like hit her with a belt, hit her with a stick, hit her with a um, a cooking spoon, a wooden spoon, until the spoon would break. And after like the third or fourth of these jokes, I started to think, what if people believe her? Uh, it was, she has an acerbic sense of humor, and uh, it seems to be a new thing with her. I guess, you know, she's a grown-up now. Her personality was always developing, and now... She has decided who she is, and that's somebody that has a, <laughs> she's got a, Cathexus has a wicked tongue, Senator, like you. 
I also got to know her boyfriend a lot because he came with us, uh, stayed in the same Airbnb that we stayed in, and we drove together. I found out that he and I have a couple of things in common, like he really loves Ender's Game, the book. I thought that that was neat. But um, the thing that I wanted to say was a bunch of people came out for the funeral including some of my relatives from California that I don't see all that often. And, and I can't imagine that they knew Uncle Len well enough to make such a long trip. But I've no doubt that they loved Uncle Len well enough to take time off and make a trip like that. My cousin Jonathan flew his entire family in to Las Vegas and... Uh, that's got to cost a ton of money because he, he's got five kids. I think that, that that is a testament to how beloved my uncle was. And the funeral was unlike any funeral I have ever been to because he died young. But everybody went on and on about how great a dude he was and how generous he was and how um, funny he was, uh, how spiritual or... Uh, deep in some way. I've told you that, and, and now I can't remember what I said in the first half of the episode, but I can cut this bit out if I already talked about it. I know I talked about the fact that he believed in everything, but he seemed to have a connection with the supernatural or connection with otherworldly forces and that sort of thing. And people would bring that up and talk about experiences that they had had and how much of an inspiration he was to them. And, and one of the things that was wonderful about Len was he was always willing to help anybody with their problems with money. You need somebody to help you move. Or you need somebody to pick you up at five o'clock in the morning because your car broke down. Sure, I'm on my way kind of thing. It was like, and this is going to sound a little bit like a bad analogy, but it felt like we were at the funeral of a superhero. And people would stand up and say, I'll never forget when Green Lantern saved my family from the Sinestro Corps. I'll never forget when Daredevil pulled my family from a burning car right before it exploded. I'll never forget when Superman saved the entire plane that we had been on and it was going to crash and there he was and we didn't need an engine to land safely. It was that kind of story where people would talk about this and one of them talked about being homeless and Len found out about it and said, you can come stay at our house. We'll get you some clothes and we'll get you some food and... You can stay with us until you get back on your feet. And those were the kind of stories that were told about him. I was one of the first people to say, oh, oh. So what they did was that they had a regular funeral with singing and a eulogy and pallbearers and prayer, you know, that kind of thing. And then after that, they had sort of a gathering, a much more informal thing where they played a video that my aunt had put together with some of his favorite songs 
and all of the photographs that people sent her. And she had said, I need these photos by midnight. And I went through my folder to see what photos I had of him. And I, I found two. And by the time I sent them to her, it was like 1245. And she sent me an email the next morning saying, thank you. But my two pictures were not part of the collage or the slideshow presentation. So she, I guess she wasn't kidding about the midnight thing. But they showed that collage, and it was a lot of pictures of him with his family, him when he was a boy, him with his brothers and sisters, and then him as an older guy just in the last few years. And it was set to all these songs that he loved, which I, I think is great. I thought it was just awesome. And then they just had an open mic, and people could say whatever they felt like saying. And I was... I think the second person to stand up. My uncle, another of my uncles had given me a poem and he said, would you read this at the funeral? And I said, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a part of the funeral. And he was upset that I hadn't read it. And, and we won't even go into that. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about that. It was one of the only dark clouds over the whole day. But I got up second and, and talked about how my uncle always saw the best in people. And in this world that we live in right now, it's super easy to be down on yourself, to criticize yourself and say that there, there are all these things that I don't like about me. And even easier to point that out about other people. But he was not that way. He always wanted to make you feel good about you. He always wanted you to know that you were appreciated, that he could see the things that were cool about you. And even if you are not an attractive person, he would be like, oh, Rish, your hair looks great, man. Oh, wow. I love that haircut kind of thing. Just a night. He would compliment your looks. He would compliment what you were wearing and then whatever talents or, you know, oh, you're singing. It's just, oh, I wish I could sing like that. And I said this, I, uh, you know, in fewer words. <laughs> and afterward, his sons came up to me and said, Do you, that would sounded so much like my dad. And I hadn't realized, but I had done my impression of him. Where he's like, oh, your hair, you know, I wish I could see that kind of thing. Uh, I hadn't realized that I had done that. But they appreciated it. Then I read the poem for my uncle, Ali, that he had wanted read at the funeral. And I found out after when he tried to stand up and say something that the reason he couldn't do it himself is because he was too emotional. And I get that. There were people who were weeping, but there were also people who were laughing. And that doesn't seem like something that you get at a lot of funerals. And especially if somebody did not live to be old, it seems much more tragic. But with his funeral, it was a celebration. It was a celebration of his life and of what he had meant to them and his example and the good times they had had. And I loved that. I had taken it upon myself to record the funeral in audio for everybody. And it was impressive to see how many people came up to me and said, oh, you know, I want a copy of that because people hadn't thought to do it. And I don't know. I'll have to ask Marshall 
maybe recording a funeral uh, with your cell phone is it, it's frowned upon. I don't know if you're not supposed to do that, but I was the only one that did it and nobody took me aside and said, "Hey man, that ain't cool, man." But everybody wanted a copy of it and that was really cool to be able to facilitate that, you know. I I uh, transferred the file last night and made an MP3 of it and cut out a couple of the parts where like the podium <laughs> I guess the podium was automatic for so short people. The podium would go to go down, and for tall people, it go. You know, cut out some of that stuff and got it down to almost exactly an hour. It was like an hour and twelve seconds long, and I considered going in and finding a couple more spaces in between speakers and stuff so I could get those twelve minutes cut, twelve seconds cut out, but I didn't do it. But I made an MP3 of it and people were able to come to me for that. And so I felt useful in that small way. Anyhow, this is a lot of personal talk. And I can, I, I understand if you don't want to hear this. The episode I did about the death of my father, I've never gone back and listened to. And, oh, oh, here's the thing that is kind of interesting. Is that Len's funeral was five years to the day that my dad died. Nobody acknowledged that. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's a holiday or anything like that. But he died five years ago yesterday. And that's when the funeral was. And in the montage of photos, I saw a couple of me, like one when I was this gawky, like 11-year-old kind of thing. And then there were a couple with my dad in them. And I found that that interesting because he is also gone and both of those guys were in the picture. There was a lot of good feeling. And you can't help but think about your own mortality when you go to the funeral of someone. And when they are young or young-ish, you think about your own funeral. You think about what will people say at yours? And will people be happy or will people be sad? And by happy, I don't mean, oh boy, I'm sure glad the bastard kicked the bucket. I don't mean it that way. I mean, whether there is good feeling and positivity uh, or whether it's just an all-around unhappy time. I suppose, having gone to three funerals in the last short while that everybody focuses on the positive on the, the the good the happy memories the accomplishments of the deceased the best parts and all of the lesser characteristics and the undesirable qualities fall by the wayside <laughs> one of the things that they talked about that people talked about when they stood up was how much he loved to eat. <laughs> and something that's great that I, I've talked about about my dad's funeral and was uh, the case in this one as well is people will tell stories that you've never heard and you see a different side to them, to the deceased, than you saw. And I thought that that was cool. If I were to die, yeah, I fear that people would not be talking about me like I were a superhero. But uh, you can think of the things that they might have said, and 
I hope that some of my positive qualities are significant enough that people notice them. You know, I have a ton of negative qualities, as you know. But don't we all want it to be said that the positives far outweighed the negatives? And that, that there's, there's, there's a bunch of stories being told and people standing up and saying, boy, I remember when Rich did this. Did you guys know he had a podcast? Did you know that he wrote in his blog over 600 days in a row? The possibilities of things like that are cool. When my mom dies, I imagine that I'll hear the same thing over and over again about how generous she was and how she was willing, not willing, she was able to see the good in everybody, even in her rotten son. And yeah, it's, it's interesting to consider what nice things might be said of you, what stories people will share, and then what memories people leave with. It didn't feel real that he was gone until I saw him in that box. And the person that was in that box, I guess his widow had insisted that they do an open casket funeral. And after six weeks in the hospital, that was quite a task. And I did not recognize the person there in the casket. It, it, that was not him. That looked like a badly done wax sculpture from Madame Tussauds. One of those where you have to look at the name tag to see who it's supposed to be. But up until that moment, I kept expecting to see him. In the back of my mind, it was like, oh, we're going to see Len. We're going to visit with him. And when I took my nephew, the four-year-old, yesterday morning, I said, hey, let's go get a drink for your mom. We'll get a drink for me. We'll get a drink for your cousin. And we'll get you a Slurpee. He came along and I said, okay, we've got to run home and then we've got to change into our nice clothes. And then we have to go say goodbye to Len. And he said, we're going to see Len? And I said, oh, has nobody explained this to you? We're, we're going uh, to his funeral. I'm, I'm sorry, Len died. And he said, Len didn't die. And I thought, oh, okay, I should not have told him that. He's too young to understand. And, you know, clearly his mom had not prepared him for a reason. But I thought that my three nephews were very well behaved at the funeral. The one that just turned 11 last week took it very badly and he cried a lot. And that's okay. That's good. Again, their Uncle Len or my Uncle Len meant a lot to them. And it makes me feel like, well, you know, when I go, maybe I meant a lot to them too. I won't be around to find that out. So I guess it's something to ponder, but it's ultimately pointless. Uh, and unless you want to do one of those, like when everybody thought Mr. Howell had died and he's on top of one of the huts and they do a funeral for him and he, you know, is weeping and he falls through the roof of the hut and everybody looks and 
I, I, it's not just Gilligan's Island where that happened. It's a it's a, a common sitcom trope or cartoon trope. Anyhow, I uh, so I've done an episode here uh, talking about this man that I loved and uh, who loved all, all, practically everybody and could see the good even in me and the world is a lesser place without him in it and. Uh, it's too bad that the next time I write something that I think he would like, I won't be able to share it with him. But I'm glad that I did share these things. And I'm glad that, you know, two years ago, I wrote that story about the vampire for him and that he liked it so much. And that is, uh, you know, what I can do with my talent and podcast about it. Hey guys, Rich Outfield of the Future here. I finished editing this episode, and even though it wasn't short, I felt like it was needing something. I believe I mentioned something about that toward the end, but what did it need? So I racked my brain and I decided to write a little story inspired by the passing of my uncle, and it is a follow-up, a sequel to the story that I wrote for him called Who Can It Be Now? I don't believe the story will make any sense or mean anything at all if you haven't read Who Can It Be Now or or heard Who Can It Be Now. But um, check it out if you like, and I, I hope that you enjoy it. Here with my childhood friend, by Rich Outfield. The cemetery was unsurprisingly quiet. The sign posted at the gate said that it closed at sundown, and this late in the year, that was pretty early. No one was around. No people, anyway. Alicia was aware of other things in the graveyard, though. Over a dozen rodents, thirty-one birds of six different species in various trees, a cat at the base of a maintenance shed twenty yards to her right, seventy-four rodents of different sizes, and over three thousand worms at a range of layers beneath the earth. She had paused to search the area before going beyond the fence, which she had squeezed through, just in case there was a night watchman or any grave-diggers, or trespassing youths, or beings less than human that might have business in a cemetery. Alicia herself was more than human, or at least considered herself to be. It was a cold evening, but she didn't feel the cold, and though it was a pretty terrifying place to be, she felt no fear. Alicia had been a vampire for a relatively short amount of time, if you looked at it from the number of years since her birth, sure, it was more than half her life, but if you looked at it from the perspective of living forever, she was just getting started. She wasn't exactly sure where she was going, but she took a deep breath and could smell freshly turned dirt in five areas in front of her. She walked to the first one and found the grave of what appeared to be a three- or four-year-old boy, judging by the picture on the floral arrangement someone had placed there. 
She moved to the next area of new dirt and found a trench a workman had dug within the last two weeks, presumably for a replacement water pipe, judging by the length and width of the trench. The third spot she investigated turned out to be the right one. There were three flower arrangements here, two small and one big. The card on the largest one read, From your friends at Paramount Construction Company. There wasn't a headstone yet, but she knew this to be the final resting place of Leo Albert Cora. Final resting place, she said softly, finding the meaning of the old phrase somewhat odd. To beings like her, there was irony in a statement like that. Alicia herself didn't sleep in a coffin, though many of her kind did. No, she preferred a regular queen-sized bed, though she slept underneath it, and on a pillow not filled with feathers or down or foam, but with dirt. Not unlike the dirt that covered her friend Leo. Well, here you are, she said to the grave. Though I don't think you can hear me down there, no matter how loud I talk. Behind her, a bird took flight from within a pine tree. She didn't see it, but was pretty sure it was a starling. Her senses were excellent, but there were still plenty of things she didn't know, such as the names of all the birds, or even which ones migrated in winter and which ones stuck it out in the cold. She took another step toward the grave. So, I thought I'd come visit you a little early. Guess I said I would. But not much has happened in my life since we talked. My overseer gave me some blood the other night that tasted funny. I almost spit it out, even though I knew it wasn't rotten or poisoned or anything. She chuckled. Turns out it was from a vegan. You know what those are? It's somebody who doesn't eat any meat or drink any milk. And a third thing, but I forget what it was. It was funny tasting. Ardelia told me it was harder to come by, and so it was a... some fancy word. Delicatessen or something. But I only drank a little bit. Give me just a regular person who eats hamburgers and ice cream, and I'm happy. She found herself smiling at the mostly darkness in front of her. A vehicle drove past the cemetery, but it sounded too old to have been a police car, and just kept on driving. She sniffed. One of the sets of flowers hasn't hardly wilted at all. There's some carnations in there. My mom really liked carnations. Even after she died. She kicked at the grass by her feet, and in that moment seemed totally like the little girl she appeared to be. The first time, I mean. She realized something. I could have brought you flowers, she told the grave. I've got money now, or I could have just took them. I don't know if you liked flowers. She was suddenly self-conscious. No one was watching her, but she felt embarrassed anyway, like she was doing something shameful or stupid, or both. Leo would have understood. Visiting hours had ended nearly three hours earlier, but there were still non-sick people milling about, 
including, as far as Alicia could tell, three healthy, living children. A nurse at the reception desk looked up as Alicia came through the stairwell door, but she had a bad angle and couldn't see the girl slip out and into the hall. The door to the stairs slowly closed on its own, and when it did, the woman stood up from her chair and craned her neck to look up the corridor to see if anyone was there. Alicia hid behind a laundry cart, which had several dirty linens inside it, including at least two with blood on them. They were hardly appetizing to the girl, though. In fact, most of the smells at the hospital were disturbing and repugnant to her, though she couldn't have said why. The nurse sat down again and continued what she had been doing previously, was entering something from a sheet of paper into a computer. There was something upsetting about the hospital that Alicia couldn't explain, even to herself. This was a bad place, despite the alluring smell of blood in four different rooms. She walked to the main corridor of the hospital floor, where the most patients were, and realized she didn't know which room to go to. She considered turning around, checking at the reception desk, seeing if it was written down somewhere. Her eyesight was remarkably good and she could have scanned the whiteboard and whatever forms and clipboards they had hanging around. But instead, she chose to concentrate, see if she could sense where Leo Cora was, either by smell or by sound. She closed her eyes, held her breath. She could hold her breath an amazingly long time, once managing over an hour before she got bored and forgot to watch the clock. Not that she even needed to breathe to function. And waited. She heard conversations, televisions in rooms, a janitor with earbuds was listening to sad Spanish music, an old woman was coughing. Beneath that, she could hear heart monitors, people eating, someone crying softly in the opposite hall, and a female voice praying in the room two doors away from her a sound that disturbed Alicia as much as nails on a chalkboard in a cartoon. And remarkably, the voice of another vampire down below her, in the basement level, whispering, You don't see me at all, over and over to someone. And then she heard a whistling, unhealthy breath coming in and out, six rooms up on her left. That was Leo, she knew even without hearing him talk. She stepped up to that room, but before she got there, she doubted herself and her abilities. How could you know someone's breathing, especially when it was wet, dying breathing like this? She paused outside the door and looked at the chart in the rack outside room 308. It said, Cora, sure enough. She put her hand on the doorknob. Hey there, a male voice said, in that way that adults speak to children or dogs. What are you doing up here? She turned. It was a young guy, not a doctor. That word they had for boy nurses, carrying a tray of half-eaten food on it. He was not smiling, but not frowning either. Me? she asked, and there was nervousness in her voice which did not please her. For over ten years now, 
Alicia had been part of the vampire enclave and had nothing to fear from human beings. But she had watched her mother die, for the second time, at the hands of people like this man, and she felt what she felt. I'm supposed to say goodbye to my grandfather, she said in a more childish voice than she usually possessed. I see. But it's time for your grandpa to rest now. Alicia knew she should simply disappear, just not be there any more, and let this guy think he'd fallen asleep or imagined her or something. But maybe there were cameras installed, in the halls, running in all the significant rooms. She couldn't fool a machine. And she should already have done so, if she was going to perform her personal vanishing act. She'd wasted enough time already. Not yet she said, half an argument, half a plea. The man raised his eyebrows to her, like he was her teacher and knew she hadn't been listening in class. Is your mom or dad around? Yes, she lied, but didn't know what to say to the guy to get him to. There was another vampire, somewhere in the building, and he was doing that thing that her kind could do to their kind. She had tried it a few times in the past, and it had never worked. She'd once tried to get a skateboarder to forget he'd seen her, but he had laughed at her attempts, and she'd had to open his throat. That was probably not an option here. I'm going to say goodbye to him. He's very sick. The orderly, that was the word, glanced at Leo's chart on the wall and shook his head. He's been sedated. Do you know what that means? He didn't wait for her to answer. That means he's already asleep. If you... He's not asleep, she protested. I can hear his breathing. Even as she said it, she could hear the tone of her own voice, like a little baby, a child that wasn't able to take care of herself or make her own decisions. Helpless. What's your name? asked the man, and there was authority there. He was bigger than her, smarter, and she wouldn't be able to argue with him or convince him. And she wouldn't be able to argue with him or convince him she was supposed to be there. Leave me alone, she said, with absolutely no authority of her own. She should have disappeared, and now maybe she couldn't if she tried. She doubted herself, had forgotten how. He cleared his throat, stood up straighter, like you would, like you would make yourself taller before a fight, to scare the other man. How about you tell me where your mom is, and we... Alicia met the man's eyes and sought out the brain behind them. You have jobs to do. You're already late. You need to go do them now. He pursed his lips, as if something had just occurred to him. Yes, but this isn't about me, he said. But he sounded hesitant, distracted, like there was something he had forgotten that was competing with his current thoughts. That was how it was supposed to be, just much, much stronger. You need, need to, finish to finish your work, work Alicia said, 
using her eyes to look through this guy's brown ones, and back, back, to where there were tubes and blood vessels and a gray-white brain sending out electricity that made him think and move and do things. Go finish your work and forget about me. The orderly opened his mouth to argue and couldn't say anything. He looked away from her, at the door to the room, then back. There was a plastic bowl on the tray he held, with a spoon in it. It was rattling on the tray. Look, the man began, but did not finish. He glanced up the hall, swore softly to himself, and then headed in that direction, fast, like somebody who left the water on and the tub was surely overflowing by now. That left Alicia alone again. She tried the door to room 308, and of course it wasn't locked. She went inside. The television was on, a black-and-white movie where men on horseback were chasing after a train, but the sound was off. Muted, that's what they had called it, back in her other life. Leo was in the bed, not looking at the TV, but looking at her. He was not asleep. He had a tube in his nose, and his hair was all white. The last time she'd seen him, he had been old, but not this old. He seemed to have gotten smaller, too, almost the size of a kid himself, while she had grown more than an inch in the past seven years. Leo! she said. Alicia, he said. He squinted. His breath was still coming out in a strained, unpleasant way, and she thought that tube in his nose was doing half of the work for him. That's you, isn't it? She smiled. I grew up so much you don't even recognize me. He did not smile. Nah. I lost all my eyesight in my right eye. Can barely see you standing there. That's too bad, she said, and immediately wanted to be gone from this place. She didn't know what the vampire downstairs was doing, feeding or seducing or maybe stealing blood from those bags they had. But a hospital was not a welcoming place for her kind. Better than a church, sure, but somewhere she did not want to be. But she was here for a reason, and she made herself go through with it. She stepped closer to him, around the bed. That's better, he said. You have grown since I saw you last. Your cheeks and your nose or something filled out. That surprised her to hear. I have? She glanced at the mirror on the wall, but of course couldn't see herself in it. Old habits were hard to break. Oh, sure. I'd say you could pass for seven or eight, or maybe nine if you wore glasses. Very funny, she said. But she did find it humorous. She was destined to stay a little girl for years and years yet. She glanced at the window where the blinds were all the way down, then back at the old man. I heard you were sick. Oh, yes, he said. 
He hadn't moved. There was a tube going into his wrist as well, but it looked to have water in it rather than blood. There was a plastic clip on his finger, too, with a wire that fed to a machine, one that told what his heart was doing, or maybe his brain. She couldn't really remember. How did you hear? A woman I know. She knows about you. She taught me things, is sort of in charge of me, where I live. Like a caseworker or something, Leo said. And that would work. She said you were going to die, and that that was good. Leo snorted. That sounds like my ex-wife. As soon as he said it, the light on the screen next to his bed changed, and he grimaced, as though he'd stubbed his toe. Oh, I don't mean that. She's all right. How have you been? I'm not here to talk about me. I'm here about you. He nodded, but it was weak. He seemed very weak, worse even than the first time she'd seen him, when he was throwing up and messing himself and barely able to walk straight. Nothing much to say. The doctors said they could make me comfortable, but that's not what I'd call it. You're going to die, then? she asked, and cocked her head, curious at his reply. We all do, he said. Present company accepted, I mean. She smiled. Alicia understood that expression. I wasn't supposed to come here. Lisette thinks I'll do something stupid. And realization dawned in the old man's eyes. He began to cough. But even those were weak, almost like a laugh deep in his throat. What do you mean by that? He managed. Alicia sighed. I don't think I could make you one of us, if that's what you're guessing. I would end up turning you into something that can't think, that would draw attention to us, and maybe even get me locked away for a few years. That doesn't sound fun. Not everything is said the girl. But I thought I'd see you. Talk to you. Thank you for what you did. I didn't do anything. I wouldn't be here without you, she said. It was a melodramatic thing to say, but it was also true. You were the last friend I made of the day people. Day people, he rasped. Is that what we are? There are other words, she said, again glancing at the computer screen. Slow, steady movement of lines. She was almost certain it was his heartbeat. You were the first friend I made of the night, people, Leo said. I appreciate you coming. Did she come? Alicia asked. The wife you used to have? Wife I used to have. <laughs> he tried to chuckle. Actually, things got a little better with my ex-wife this year. 
We're okay, friends, now that there's no time for, you know, the stuff that doesn't really matter. Do you still love her? The girl asked. Love was a faraway concept to her now, like most of the things from before she turned. Oh, sure. But it's a sad love, you know, and all the anger's faded away. He winced as something inside him gave him a jab. It took him a moment to find her again in the room. Well, nearly all of it. He winced as something inside him gave him a jab. Good, she said. Sometimes when I get angry, it doesn't go away all night. Sometimes not until I do something about it. He glanced away at the silent television, where a cowboy was standing in a saloon with another cowboy, both of them trying to get the attention of a pretty barmaid. Alicia decided not to elaborate. Will you die tonight? she asked no longer familiar with the concept of tact or sensitivity. Don't rightly know, he said, considering the question, independent of its rudeness. I, uh, I was feeling pretty low an hour ago, but they stuck me full of something that, that numbed most of that. I was just about to go to sleep when I heard you talking in the hall. He'd heard that? At least his hearing was still intact. Come give your grandpa a hug, then, Leo said, and his smile was a real good one. She was beside him then. I could make it go away, she offered. Your pain, your sickness. Like you did before, he remembered. That would be awful nice of you. You were nice to me, she said, when those men were looking for me. Did you ever see them again, he wondered. I did, Alicia said, and the sides of her mouth rose a little, showing teeth that were not only sharp, but angled wrong, like they'd tear through her lips every time she spoke. I'll bet you did he said. Leo sighed, but then it started him coughing again. This time it went on much longer. Tears were running down his eyes, and his hands had crumpled into fists, pressing into the hospital bed at his side. Alicia reached out and touched him. Shh, she said, again glancing at the monitor, where lines were becoming jagged on the display. Or they'll come in here. His coughing abated. Ah, he said. What? I... <clears throat> he tried to clear his throat, but was unable to. I... There was a pitcher of water beside his bed. Alicia picked it up and looked for a cup to pour it in. But Leo had already gotten it and was drinking some. The majority went down his chin and onto his chest, however. He handed her the cup when he was done, and she refilled it from the pitcher. 
I used to think I dreamed you, you know, he said, but his voice was raspy and quiet. She didn't know if a day person would be able to hear him. I... I had a couple of friends. One of them came to visit me the other day. That I told about you. What happened in the cabin when you visited him. They were... Alicia took a step back. What friends? You shouldn't have told. He was not alarmed. Doesn't matter, kid. They didn't even pretend to believe my story. One had done mushrooms once, he said, and, and had imagined Farrah Fawcett had come visiting him, done his hair up all nice so they could go out on the town. And you know what he turned out to, to have put in his hair? Leo snorted, then looked down at his hands. My God, you ought to market that thing you did to me. That was like taking a Percocet, a two-valium, and a morphine drip all at the same time. It's just a trick, you know, she said. It didn't make you better or anything. Yeah, I guess I know that. Sure was nice, though. Thanks. She reached out her hand. He took it. Your hands are so cold he commented. Well, yeah, Alicia said, not adding more, due to her memory of how politeness worked. Yours are only a little warm. I'll tell you what you can do for me, Leo said, and their short conversation had tired him out, so he kept blinking, like the light in the room was too bright. What? she asked, getting even closer. He gave her hand a weak squeeze. You can come visit me, where they bury me. Tell me how you are, the things you've been doing. Where they bury you? Why would you stay there? Do you need me to dig you up? He just stared for a moment. Oh, I see, he said, then coughed a few times. There were tissues beside his bed, and she wiped his mouth with one. No, kid. My body'll be down there, like a regular person. Just visit my grave and pretend I can hear you. I don't want to do that, Leo, she said, and something very close to emotion was under the surface. You shouldn't have to die. Let's... Just agree to disagree, all right, he said. Just come to my grave, and maybe I'll be able to hear you. You'll for sure be able to hear me, if you're in quickened down there. Just give me some time. I think I can find the way to change you. He cleared his throat, and his brows furrowed with the effort of the action. Oh, that's not for me, kiddo. She got much closer to him, close enough he could smell something unpleasant about her, and she surely could smell the sickness on him. But you wouldn't have to feel pain any more. Not ever. Sure, you're old, 
but imagine being old but still being able to walk and run and be up all night without getting tired. Why wouldn't everybody want that? He looked at the ceiling, thoughtful. Sometimes, when you're tired at the end of a hard day, you don't want that day never to have happened. You just want to rest now that it's done. Alicia didn't understand a word of that. He was on pills, or not thinking right because of sickness, or mortality, or stupid human religious ideas. If I could make you like me, wouldn't you want that? she asked. He nodded, not in answer, but in contemplating her question. It... it is tempting, in a way. It's been years, but you're still a little girl, while now I'm an old man. She didn't bother to tell him that he had already been an old man when they first met. I couldn't make you young, though. You'd be like you are now, just for another, I don't know, hundred years. Not forever. Another hundred years seems like a long time, Leo said. Alicia let go of his hand. Her eyes got a little wider. She hadn't looked much like a child this whole time, but now she came pretty close. I could get someone. I know people that might come, that might change you, if I promised to do stuff for them. He waved at the air with a twisted, shaking hand. No, don't bring it up again, please. She shook her head. Why can't you understand me? What I'm telling you? I do understand you, Alicia, he said. And he certainly seemed to. But it's enough that you came to say goodbye. I appreciate that. And that you took the pain away. It will come back, Leo. Yeah, I know, he said. Why don't you go to sleep? she asked. And she didn't intend to influence him. It had just been a suggestion. That sounds nice, he whispered. And Alicia realized he understood sleep as something different, something permanent. Maybe she meant that, too. You could go to sleep before the pain comes again. Trick it, you know? And you'd drink my blood? She recoiled. Ooh, no! A crease appeared on Leo's forehead. Hey, I don't know about this stuff. In movies, you guys drink blood. Alicia nodded. Yeah, well... In real life, they did, too. But she chose not to say that. I just meant, if you're okay to go tonight. He smiled, and it appeared genuine. You've grown up a lot more than you look it. She considered explaining about how slowly she aged, and what an inconvenience it had been these past ten years. It was difficult to get respect and to be independent. 
On the other hand, it made potential victims awfully easy to draw and isolate. Instead, she simply said, Thank you. Well, thank you, too, he said, and wiggled his fingers in front of his face. I don't feel much of anything right now, and that's a real kindness. You're welcome, she said. You want to sleep. Again, she said it softly, not forcefully, and took two steps closer to him. She watched him blink, like a little kid trying so hard to stay awake listening for Santa. Yeah, I guess I do, he managed. I wish you'd come to visit me earlier, just, just to let me know you were okay. I wasn't allowed to, she said, not wanting him to go to sleep yet. They watched me close for a while, didn't let me out of their sight for a couple of years. Still, would have been nice, he said. I kept seeing you whenever there were little girls nearby, even if it was during the day. But they never were you. This he said in increasingly slurring tones, his eyelids heavy, his hands clasped together on his chest like he was curling up for a lengthy nap. Which indeed he was. Even went back to church for a while there because of you. He got out before his eyes completely shut. What? She said, surprised. Why, why would you do that? His eyes opened up about halfway. Seeing you, your kind, made me think about stuff. You weren't going to find me in church, Leo, she said, more sternly than she intended. Oh, no, I wasn't looking for you there, he mumbled. Sorry, I'm not making sense. She was very, very close to him now. If she wanted to, she'd barely have to bend, and she'd be on him, his neck or his wrist, or even that vein that ran across his forehead. It's okay. You want, want to, to sleep, sleep now. Yeah. Thanks for visiting, he said, and closed his eyes for good. You're my last mortal friend, Leo, she said, and kissed him quickly on the forehead, just to the left of that vein. He didn't stir, but he had a peaceful, contented look on his face, completely free of pain or worry. That seemed nice. Alicia, a minute later, slipped out of his room, glancing at the monitor beside the bed, which was reading a slow, steady heartbeat, and very little strength to it. Not much had changed in the hospital corridors. The janitor was gone, two doctors were talking about test results, and a nurse was speaking Spanish on the phone. The orderly she'd spoken to earlier wasn't on this floor. She thought he was in the bathroom, the floor below her, but couldn't say for sure. 
The vampire she'd sensed in the basement was no longer there. Alicia went to the stairwell and crept down once again, nearly coming out onto the second floor by mistake, but pausing halfway through the door when she heard a baby start to cry. It was followed by at least three more newborns, all crying at the same time, which told her this was maternity, not the floor with the exit. Sorry, she said to herself, or more probably, to the infants she had distressed, and backed into the stairwell again. Upstairs, in room 308, Leo Cora's heart rate slowed even more. Now she was in the cemetery, by herself, standing above Leo's grave, and wondered what the point of it was. No, I should have come visit you, like you said, she decided, just to talk, to see how you turned out. A bird flew by overhead, and banked sharply when it noticed her there, flying quickly back the way it had come. Better safe than sorry, you know. Alicia watched it go, then faced the turned earth and flower arrangements again. I could have answered questions for you, and told you what I was learning, and, I don't know, asked if there were any people you knew I should visit. She ran a hand through her hair, just for something to do. She felt self-conscious to be standing there, talking to a dead man, and not even the kind of dead man who could answer back. Anyway, maybe I can tell you now what's been going on in my life. She snorted. My second life, we sometimes call it. This could be a place I go when I want to be alone, but not feel lonely. Is that all right with you? Leo didn't answer. She knew he was down there, almost directly beneath her feet but she didn't sense anything coming from him. No movements, or thoughts, or even a presence. Alicia was surprised when moisture moved down her cheek. She wiped it away, assuming it was rain or blood. But it was tears, something she hadn't produced in a good long time. She hadn't thought she was capable of that anymore. Shouldn't have been able to, really. Huh. I'll take that as a yes, she said to the night. The end. Well, there you go. I, I should have warned you that it was not a short story. It, it sort of got away from me. I didn't know what I wanted the story to be about and discovered that in the writing of it. But... Uh, I hope that you feel like it was an interesting send-off to the Leo Cora character, or at least an interesting send-off. And I'm going to send you off now. I thank you for listening to this all the way through to the end, and I hope that you have people that you care about in your life that uh, you will miss when they are gone. I guess that's a weird thing to wish. But you know what I'm saying. And listen, I can promise you that the next episode will be either cheerier or much more uh, about a story. 
about how my writing is going. And I hope that, that you appreciate this in whatever limited way I can make it, you understand, uh, and that you're looking forward to more from me. You can always support me on Patreon. It means the world to me. It's a little bit like my uncle saying, I like your haircut. You're not as ugly as you think that you are. And uh, we can always stand to hear a little bit more of that. I've been Rich Outfield. Take care. The podcast you have just listened to was produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it while you still have the chance. The music in the show was by Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech.com. And remember, there's a Patreon page out there if you'd like to throw a dollar or two my way. I must be dreaming. That would be awful nice of you. You were nice to me, she said, when those men were looking for me. Did you ever see them again? He wondered. I did. She's, oh, geez, Alicia said.